0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the panel where we talk about Bitcoin 50,000. Just kidding. Um, wrong panel, <laughs> wrong time. We're going to talk about some really cool stuff today. And we got some wonderful guests. Uh, welcome to Disrupt TV. And more importantly, I'm Ray Wong with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. And we will do our guests in reverse order. So going backwards, uh, tell us where you're calling in from, what you're going to talk about today. And uh, we'll work our way back. So we'll start with Om. Om.
1: Hey, my name is Om, I'm calling from San Francisco, and we're going to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about.
0: Oh, no, that's dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) You're doing a double header with Chris. So Chris, (laughs) uh, quick introduction. On your end, where are you calling in from?
2: Uh, I'm also in San Francisco, probably about a mile away from home, and I just do whatever he
3: says. (laughs) Good
0: idea. Oh, no. This is is a cascading issue. (laughs) All right. We go to Rita. So, Where are you calling in from, and what are you talking about today?
3: I'm in Princeton, New Jersey, and I think we're talking about inflection points and what happens next.
0: Ooh, ooh, lots of inflection points out there, especially right now. All right, well, with that, uh, we're going to do some quick countdowns uh, before we start the show. Uh, For those of you following, this show is sponsored by Robots and Pencils and IFS. We thank them very much. Uh, So with that, uh, we'll do a quick countdown. Uh, Three, two, one, and we'll begin.
4: Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. And we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my uh, pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and he's on a new book tour right now, 20-city tour across the U.S. for Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Uh, this book is uh, launched officially next week, if I'm not mistaken, July 13th, so a must-read. Ray's uh, regular television, business, and technology news contributor. You see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at rwang0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV.
0: Hey, thanks a lot for having me on the show. And today we've got my awesome co-host as well, Vala Ashar, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of *The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence*. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg, and of course, posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But it's never about us. It's about our awesome guests. We have one really awesome thinker here. Um, and of course, who do we have here today to kick it off, Bala?
4: Absolute privilege for Ray and I to have Rita McGrath, best selling author, sought after keynote speaker, longtime professor at Columbia Business School. Rita is the founder of Valise. Valise helps organizations build lasting transformation capabilities as the basis for long term shared prosperity. Rita is widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. She received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious thinkers 50 organization and has been consistently named one of the top, one of the world's top 10 management thinkers in its biannual ranking, number five, the most latest uh, ranking. As a consultant to CEOs, Rita's work has had a lasting impact on strategy and growth programs of Fortune 500 companies worldwide. Rita is the author of bestselling The End of Competitive Advantage. Rita's new book is Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. This is going to be the main topic of our, our discussion coming up. Uh, Rita has written three other books, including Discovery Driven Growth, which uh, Professor Clay Christensen uh, uh, cited as uh, creating one of the most important management ideas ever developed, what an amazing compliment from uh, Professor Christensen. You can follow Rita on Twitter at RGMcGRATH, McGrath. Welcome, Rita, to Disrupt TV. It's a pleasure to be here. Sorry, I had to cut your bio short. We only have 20 <laughs> minutes. You've done a lot. So thank you for being here.
3: As you know, well, a lot of it is just showing up, right? Yeah, no, it's more than that. But no, really it's
0: more sure. than that with you. It's definitely yeah. more than that with you. So, but hey, real quick. I mean, you've got some really interesting points and we're coming out of a pandemic. This post-pandemic future is very different, but the concept around inflection points is really important, especially for executives, especially folks who are in the middle of boardroom planning right now over the summer. Let's talk a lot about inflection points and what that means.
3: Sure. So um, I define a strategic inflection point following Andy Grove as something that exerts a 10x force on your business. So 10 times faster, 10 times better, 10 times cheaper, you know, 10 times different in some way. And the thing about an inflection point, a, a really big one, like the one we're going through right now, is if you catch it right, it can take your business to new heights. If yep. you're wrong, it can cause your business to go into decline. What is not optional is steady state. And I think a lot of people are really wrestling with that right now.
4: So uh, I think, you know, in your book, you mentioned that- inflection points can create new opportunities for like companies like Amazon and Netflix. Mm -hmm. There can also be devastating consequences when you ignore them, for example, like Blockbuster or Toys R Us. Um, And and the interesting thing about it is that it shouldn't be a surprise uh, that that, that inflection points are not random um, and they don't happen overnight. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about why is it that business leaders have a blind spot when uh, some of these trends take years to come to fruition, whether it's good or bad mm-hmm. for your sector, or your company?
3: Sure. So I think what happens is that any business is born at a specific point in time when some things are possible and some things are not. And as you develop a recipe for success, those constraints, that reality gets embedded in your business model, and that gets embedded in your KPIs, and that gets embedded in how you regulate it, and that gets embedded in, you know, everything. And so the whole set of practices that evolve are based on what was possible back then. So an inflection point changes the nature of what's possible. But you, as the executive, as the leader, are, you know, running the engine that is based on the past. And if you think about something as simple as your budgeting process, right? <laughs> like Where does this year's budget start? Well, it kind of starts with last year's budget. <laughs> and last year's budget was built to serve something that was in the past. So I think one of the things that leaders need to do right now, because we are in this stage where steady state is not an option, is really take a big step back and say, what are the assumptions from the past that need to be changed?
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful point, right? And especially given the assumptions that we've had over the last, you know, 14 to 16 months, every assumption was blown, right? Traditionally, we'd have like data and analysis and we look at it and, you know, we'd have a retrospective view of the last week or the week before, mm-hmm. right? And, and now the year before the comps don't make any sense and the complete, you know, business environment has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that kind of environment, like, I mean, there's massive levels mm-hmm. of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. What do we do? I mean, what, you know, what can we anchor ourselves on? What can practical actions leaders can take and say, you know, this is a baseline. This assumption is no longer true. We have to ask different sets of questions.
3: What what do they have to do to get there? Well, one of the comforting things, I think, is that a lot of the tools that people that work in innovation use are very applicable to regular business today. So rapid learning, experimentation, Mm. do some A-B testing, develop your hypotheses and don't be afraid. You know, I think one of the things people can really help each other with is try hard to avoid this need to be right. Like if you can say Mm. it could be this option, it could be that option. We have no data about which one is the correct one. So what we need to do is learn what the correct one is. And, you know, hardcore business leaders are often really struggling with this notion that my experience doesn't mean anything right now. <laughs> you know, The only thing I've got is uncertainty. And the only way out of uncertainty is you have to form some hypotheses and run some experiments. That
4: makes a lot of sense. That's scary though. Had, That's... It is, okay. oh, oh,
3: wait, experimentation can be scary.
4: Um, we recently had Professor, uh, Scott Galloway, uh, mm-hmm. NYU School of Business, and he talked about macro trends, mm-hmm. uh, globalization, digitization, and he calls it great dispersion, this decentralized digital only world that we've been living through in the past year and a half. Um, and I asked him, "What is what, how are your students, uh, the nature of questions, um, the changing in curriculum, what, how, what's the impact of teaching our future leaders Uh, about dealing with uncertainty and fear in this once in a lifetime experience that we've all had in the past year and a half. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship with you and your students as we're going through this journey?
3: Sure. So I teach mostly executives. So I'm kind of with the with a group that's a little bit older and not not just at the beginning of their careers. Um, well, I think the first thing that is interesting is that we're appealing now to a much more broadly dispersed group of people. So, you know, since I'm teaching live online, uh, I can be talking to people in Ghana and Pakistan and India and you, you name it. Um, so we're able to come together as a community in a much more holistic way than if we had to sort of schlep everybody to New York. So I think that's something. I think the second thing that I'm certainly seeing is this hunger for help me make sense of this, you know, help me understand mm. what's going on. I don't want to learn about, you know, the sensor razor from 1990. I really want to <laughs> understand what's going on right now and how you can make how you can make sense out of it. So I think the pressure for those of us working with populations like that is how do we create some frameworks for thinking mm. about things that are not things we ever had to think about before.
0: You know this makes a lot of sense and, and one of the challenges every every leaders facing right now is really about leadership styles right what's the right leadership style what's appropriate they've got a whole bunch of you know other you know factors that they never had to think about other than P&L they're thinking about you know D&I they're thinking about sustainability they're thinking about other ESGs right those have come into the mix just at the same time as all this chaotic chaotic conditions kind of occurred mm-hmm. um, Are there frameworks are there other suggestions that you know, organizations should be thinking about to kind of anchor themselves as, as an approach to help them um solve and get through some of that ambiguity
3: sure so i think two ideas uh one is if you think about competitive advantages as getting compressed and this is this is before mm. the pandemic but but oh, yeah. what, it, what it suggests is that leaders need to get a lot more comfortable with the creation of new advantages where that's the innovation you know New, new new, new to the world creation process. They have to continue to be good at exploiting it at making the existing business run, but they also have to get better at transforming. So when an advantage is to kind of run out of gas, if you don't transform your organization, it's gonna take it with, <laughs> it's gonna take it into decline alongside. So I think one of the first things to recognize is that you can think of yourself almost like a chef in a kitchen and every piece of your operation is in some other phase. right? So you need to get better at understanding innovation as a proficiency and get better at healthy disengaging. So there's some very practical things that you need to kind of build up your skill set on. So that's one. Second one is um, I really think there's no substitute for taking a good hard look at your portfolio of things you're working on right now. So what's in the core? Like what's candidates to be the next generation core? What are some of those experimental options for the future that you're investing in? Not because you want to make a commitment to them, but because you want to open a door.
4: Hmm.
3: And, and, And how do you guide these
4: executives in terms of measuring Um, innovation progress and the different levels of innovation?
3: Oh, um, well, that's another thing a lot of people don't understand. So you look at things like uh, how many ideas have we evaluated? How many ideas um, have made some progress through the incubation stage, uh, how many things got out the other end, how material are they? You know, are we are we stopping things early enough if they don't look as so though they're gonna have a lot of promise? So what you'll see with the really successful high growth companies, like the big tech companies, is they try a lot of things, but they really hone in on the ones that have that like one in a hundred chance. And I think a lot of executives, it's so hard to get anything started that then they, they, they really hate to have it stop because, oh my God, that's the only one we had, right? and so. Innovation, in many ways, is a real numbers game.
0: Yeah, you know, it's getting the right set of portfolios, getting the right set of projects in place. But the challenge on the back end is there's this massive focus on EBITDA, mm-hmm. right? They're focused on profit <laughs> per sale, revenue per employee. Um, they're not thinking about long-term gains or, you know, at some point they're thinking about financial engineering. Like, do we do this merger to make our numbers look better so we can hit our bonus? How do we get out of that short-term mindset and start thinking a little bit more long-term? Um, otherwise, we've seen shareholders basically strip the money out of cash cows and then invest in companies to beat the crap out of those companies that they were taking the cash out of. Exactly. I mean, it's like they hedge their portfolio right how do we change that you know it's kind of crazy so
3: well a couple couple of measures uh that are useful one is something you call the imagination premium which essentially breaks the value of a company into what, what should an investor expect to get out of their operations, right? Versus what yeah. should the investor be prepared to accept in terms of growth? So, if you look at a high imagination premium company, the classic would be Amazon, you know. And I mean, Jeff Bezos mm-hmm. said from the beginning if you, you know, if you want a dividend, I'm the wrong company for you. <laughs> you know, just go invest in <laughs> um, So, the imagination Very premium, true. we measure that. And what we found is when it's too low, when it's really low, um, that you're you're going to attract an activist. You're going to get the kind of behavior that you just described. If it's too high, you're Elon Musk, for example. You have one bad press conference, and you lose $6 billion worth of market capital (laughs) in the afternoon. Or one tweet. Yeah, well, right. Wait, right? So, um, who's, so who's the sec matter. again What's that SEC <laughs> um, so i think that that's one measure the other measure i think and this really has to come from the board is that balance between investing for today and investing for tomorrow and i heard a great phrase the other day which i'm going to steal um which was talking about building cathedrals and if you go back to the middle ages people worked on cathedrals knowing they would never see it completed you know yeah. knowing they would never live long enough oh. to see the actual cathedral emerge and yet there purpose was to invest in that cathedral. And I think we need more of that kind of thinking mm. in our management cadres. That's a great, that's a great, that a great uh, way of yes. framing it. That's yes. amazing.
4: Um, we had Aaron, Levy CEO, you. Of, yeah, we had Aaron <laughs> Levy CEO of Box on our show last week, and he talked about more and more when he's engaged with CIOs, they're talking about not just modernizing legacy processes or enhancing their products and service, but they're really thinking about new business model innovation, can, it, it, do you get a sense that the pandemic was an accelerant for companies okay. Okay. to really think about new revenue sources and new ways of connecting and gaining yeah. market share?
3: So... Uh- point on that is we're increasingly and this again was underway before the pandemic but it's accelerated it tremendously we're moving from value being part of product and service attributes so my my collar is whiter my towels are fluffier that kind of world to a world where the value is really part of interactions so who do I belong to what's the stream mm-hmm. things I'm going to pay for what am I subscribing to and so it's moving really from this more sort of traditional world of the business school textbook to a world where it's all about interactions and, and how you can make those more valuable to a whole ecosystem of people. So that's one. The other thing that we know, and this was written about in a wonderful book called The Imagination Machine, we know that unexpected stuff prompts human beings to engage their imagination. Um, so that when things are steady state and normal, we just kind of operate on autopilot because it's too exhausting to pay attention to everything. But when there's something like a pandemic, what happens is it, it lights up the parts of our brain that go, "Whoa, something different's happening! I need to, I need to have a novel response." And that's something we know from science. So I think what you can expect is a lot of new business models, a lot of new startups, a lot of new ideas, because people have been jarred out of the old way of thinking. Mm-hmm.
4: That's
0: a great point. We're seeing massive shifts in terms of how people are working. We're seeing massive shifts in terms of the concept of where work occurs. We're seeing shifts in terms of business models. We're seeing that decentralization trend come into play uh, in terms of how we actually finance things, access control. Um, What do we do about larger existential kind of competitive threats like like the way digital giants are coming into the market or um, governments like, you Mm -hmm. know, the CCP China coming in and creating new models and constraints. Mm -hmm. Does that change the way we think or are we going to create new models or different models to combat that?
3: There will be new models. So the first observation I would make is that it takes institutions between 15 and 25 years to catch up with emerging reality. So if you look at the, the around 1900 when you know oil first became this big thing and you had the big you know the big giant oil um barons and and standard and you had monopolies in oil and steel and everything and our first concept of yep. antitrust was around that right so it took a while though and it took a lot of monopolies and so forth and i think the same thing is happening with the tech giants now we have an, an antitrust and a regulatory regime which is just just now, maybe beginning to catch up with what's been real for nearly two decades. So I think you'll see that catching up. You're starting to see a lot more questioning about the legitimacy of some of these third-party data business models, um, where people are saying, "Wait a minute, you know, no, there's a there's there are personal rights to not be tracked all the time um, and to be surveilled." You know, I think that's going to be a conversation that just gets louder. When you think about governments, now we have to think about really who's who's at the table in the world order kind of creation thing? I mean, you know, China does not want to have the rest of the world against it, I don't think. It does want the opportunity to exert what it sees as its rightful place at the table. Um, and so there now you're in the world of you know, diplomacy and policy. And, and I think um, we all have a collective interest in there being some kind of overarching common commonality. And I think we'll have to really think hard about that, figure that out
0: good point geotech policy is going to be super hot so
4: yeah you know, it's funny when you mention like the 15 to 20 year catch-up and you think about the web 1993 it's like 28 years old the web you know cern ten, sorry, ten the, lead. Web. the yeah, web the web yeah you know the birth <laughs> of the internet generation is 28 years old uh like you know when we talk about amazon was 1994 like you know year after the web or you know iphone in 07 facebook in 04 like these major shifts in cloud, mobile, social, web, uh, blockchain, crypto, 10 years old, you know, um, you know, talk about a potential inflection point or not being able to see the impact of DeFi and decentralization on institutions like, you know, banks. Um, It's only 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so how has the concept of leadership shifted with this like unprecedented velocity of new innovation, high impact, emerging technologies like machine learning and internet of things and blockchain. Do, do, what are your uh, views in terms of just concept of leadership yeah. in this incredible world that we're in now?
3: Well, I think leadership has really gone from the assumption that the guys at the top of the of a hierarchy know what's going on <laughs> and tell everybody what to do, right? I mean, that, that's like not the case anymore. Um, and so I think we're really moving towards leaders as, as absorbers of information, no matter how uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leaders is creating a climate of psychological safety, of people being able to share what they're seeing, you know, right? I talk about leaders need to be present at the edges, right? Because that's where the snow melts. So the snow melts from the edges. And it takes a really conscious effort, I think, to be that kind of leader, because often by the time you've gotten to sort of a very senior level, you know, you've made it by telling people what to do and playing politics <laughs> and doing the safe things. And, you know, you're, you didn't have to stick your neck out, but by the time you're responsible for an enterprise-wide set of decisions, which is what leaders, in the largest organizations are, you need those information flows. You need you need to know what that, the dock worker saw that was weird, like, you know, or well, that's never happened before. Why, why do I, you need to have ways of encouraging the organization to bring that stuff in. And so the practices you can use. So David Cody, for example, who just recently stepped down as the CEO of Honeywell, uh, has a, a wonderful saying, two things he does that I think are marvelous. One was, you know, I don't have to have all the information when I walk into the meeting, but I'd really like to have all the information before I walk out. And uh, the other thing he would do is you know, the more senior people would be talking, right? And then he would, he would turn to the most junior person in the room and he'd say, so we, we've been talking, what, what do you think? And of course, the first few times he did it, they, it terrified them. They're like looking at their, wow. but, but he made it clear that he wanted, you know, constructive input. And uh, Cody's remarkable. I and mean, he was at Honeywell for 17 years, engineered the most amazing turnaround. Um, and, and, you know, and in a very, he's, he's like, whatever the antithesis of the cinematic CEO is. He was an operator. Definitely but that intensity, and that willingness to really say, let's really get to the heart of this issue is, is huge.
4: I love the and beginner's mindset approach of walking into a meeting with humility when you're the top person. Mm-hmm. And I also love the best ideas win, not the best titles, uh, which is just that, you know, all the hyper growth companies that I have a privilege of collaborating with, there is definitely a sense of curiosity, humility, and, um, you know, people have the courage or have the permission in the safe space mm-hmm. to, to contribute and collaborate. I love that story. Really well. Sorry, Ray. Go ahead. Yeah.
0: No, it's a great point. And, and, and even Darius Adamchek, who's uh, succeeded, you know, Cody, I mean, that was a pretty interesting succession transition. I mean, they've done some wonderful stuff over at Honeywell that mm-hmm. makes them much more technology and digital mm-hmm. company than an industrial than they were before. Absolutely. So, but hey, one real quick question. You've been yeah. talking about evolving leaders, Rita. I wanted to get to that. I think it's a very important piece. Leadership is changing. Um, is there anything you want to add to that for folks to rethink what leadership is going to look like? Um, we'll add to that. And then, of course, um, we'll then close out.
3: I would say think about where you're getting your information and try to go to places that are not your usual suspects. So the line I like to think about is William Gibson's: "You know, the future's already here; it's just not evenly distributed yet." So go to where the future is.
0: I know that makes a lot of I love sense. That. So
4: and of course,
3: reading
0: no, so
4: around the corners. so okay. definitely. Am, you know, that's definitely a given. <laughs>
3: The book over there. Wait, over there. So, yeah. No,
0: this is wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here with Rita McGrath, professor at Columbia Business School and founder of Valleys. Valleys uh, I pronounced it like Valleys. And of course, <laughs> Seeing Around Corners. Catch the book. Very, very important. Of course, check out Rita's site. Lots of useful information there at ritamcgrath.com. Thank you so much for being here. Follow her on Twitter at RGM, actually, RGMCGRATH. And thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Rita, for having
4: me. Thank you. you're terrific. Thanks. A big thinker, amazing, amazing insights. And uh, thinking, uh, talking about big thinkers, we have two legends as our next guest. And bear with me, I'm going to go through the introduction of our, our next two guests. And we're going to do this panel style versus uh, individual interviews, which we typically Yeah, we'll have. put our
0: panelists up ahead. I'll pop yeah, up yeah, here. Let's go. Yes. All right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'll start with Om Malik, a award-winning journalist, founder of GigaOM, entrepreneur, investor, and photographer. Om has spent uh, nearly three decades in the trenches of Silicon Valley as a journalist, entrepreneur, more recently as a venture capitalist. By marrying technology and humanism, Om tries to connect the dots and offer his understanding of our present and future. With seed funding from True Ventures, Om turned a one-man technology blog, which he started in 2001, into a pioneering media company and research firm. Ohm is a partner emeritus at True Ventures now. He's focused on technology trend predictions while guiding the True team as they take bigger and bolder technology market risks. Ohm is an amateur photographer, one of my favorite followers on Twitter. He's known for his minimal landscapes. He's also a self-confessed, I don't even know what it means, Leica enthusiast. Yes, I'm sorry, Leica the camera. Uh, You can follow Ohm at Ohm. Talk about an early Pioneer on uh, social. How did you get that oh, Twitter man. handle? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I tried to get Vala, and I was too late. But uh, welcome, Om to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Um,
2: wow. did you make the first tweet ever, or one of the first tweets, yeah. or something like
1: that? I have the. I'm the infamous uh, person who launched uh, Twitter before they were ready to launch. Oh my god!
0: Didn't <laughs> Twitter person zero is the story. Oh
1: wow! <laughs> I didn't know
4: well, with over a million followers, it, it makes sense that you are an incredible early adopter. And our, our with home we have uh, Chris Michael, uh, is the inaugural artist in residence at the National Academ- Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. Chris's appointment is focused on leveraging visual storytelling. He's the best follow in terms of photography on Twitter to elevate the work of scientists, engineers and medical professionals in society. Chris has spent many years working with the National Academies in Sciences and Communications, Chris has been a member of the President's Circle and on the advisory board of the Division on Earth and Life Studies. In addition to his current appointment, he currently serves as advisor to the Climate Communications Initiative. Chris is an accomplished photographer who has documented humans working in extreme locations like the North Pole, Everest, um, DR Congo, and edges of space aboard a U-2 spy plane. He has also had the opportunity to photograph many global leaders, including as the photographer for the 14th Dalai Lama. His high uh, impact images have been seen by millions and have appeared broadly in print and in everything from Google screensavers to album covers. He has published a number of fine art books and is currently working on his latest book with travel writer, Pico Iyer. Previously, Chris founded and sold two technology companies, military.com, which was the first social network. Uh, Chris launched this five years before Facebook, and Affinity Labs. Uh, He's also founder of Nautilus Ventures, uh, a Seed uh, Venture Fund. Prior to becoming an entrepreneur, Chris was a naval uh, flight officer and flew for the Navy as a navigator and mission commander aboard P2C patrol aircrafts. Amazing. Both of these gentlemen are amazing followers on Twitter. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Michael, C-H- R. I. S. M. I. C. H. E. L. Welcome, Omen Chris, to Disruptive. Sorry for the oh, long intro. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry a Listen, when you have legends on the show, uh, our audience—they already know you. I just wasted three minutes.
2: Yeah. Of, uh, <laughs> I had another interpretation. Maybe not legends. Maybe just old. <laughs>
4: No, 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 no. In our eyes, no, it, no, we're no. technologists and business people, and you two are legends. So, anyway, yeah, you guys are definitely <laughs> legends.
0: So, well, hey, let's start with some interesting stories here. I mean, how did you two actually meet other than being a mile, mile apart from each other here? So,
1: Ohm? Uh, you you want to take that, Chris? You know, age before beauty. I don't know. How long ago? <laughs> was it 20 years ago?
2: Something like that. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, Ohm is really a very famous person in Silicon Valley. So, I knew of Ohm before I met him. I mean, he was covering tech and a mutual friend of ours, Abigail Johnson, introduced us and, um, you know, we hung out a little bit. I remember I have an early photo, one of the earliest photos of Ohm, and it's Ohm sitting between uh, the two founders of YouTube and uh, back in the day. And, um, you know, we have one of those uh, kind of slow Kindle friendships. So I used to see him, you know, fairly regularly, but maybe not that often every few months. And now uh, Ohm and I talk every couple of days. He's one of my dearest, dearest friends in the world yeah and uh you know there aren't a lot of advantages to getting older but one of them is the gift of great lifelong friendships and om is one of my dearest <laughs> friends well
0: the one harry met sorry well, what about you om well
1: <laughs> it's for me like chris has been yeah it's like it's, it's been a slow kindling you know friendship and uh i think a lot of it is because when i met him i was like all young people in a rush in life <laughs> right like i was basically handling two jobs which was working for the magazine i used to work for and doing the blog thing and <clears throat> and i just was also just so preoccupied with my own self that i didn't really uh, feel like you know time for developing long term relationships but i think but when you meet a friend you meet a friend and you know it takes a little time but here we are like 20 plus years later that's amazing. What That's amazing. Well,
4: you wrote, you wrote in an article, or a blog that talked about why you love San Francisco, and, um, and how there's beauty in its weirdness, and, and how you love New York, but you love San Francisco being there for 20 years. And in the post summer in the middle, as you were trying to explain the incredible benefits, life benefits of living in San Francisco, you wrote, had I not lived here, would I have become friends with Chris Michael? Yeah. Whose work has redefined my method of expression? Can you talk a little bit about how Chris impacted what, what, your what? research? That's incredible.
3: <laughs> I know. Mean,
1: That's what we do at Disrupt. You know. <laughs> uh, no. So I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lover of New York. Just, just to be clear, like yes. I left New York in March 2003, kicking and screaming why am I going to San Francisco? I don't even like it there, blah, blah, blah. Then I got here and then slowly, you know, it's like one of those things you, three three years go by, I think it takes three years before you start to think of uh, San Francisco as your place. And then over a period of time, I got to know Chris and we got to spend time together. And you know, over in 2015, after Gigom, you know, shut down, um, I was a little bit lost in like, you know, I did not know how to express myself. Words, you know, were like linked to the company, which had shut down in a way. And so and I used to take photographs but with my iPhone. And Chris is one of the three people who told me to step it up. And like time to get a real camera and actually go <laughs> because he saw something in the way I was taking my iPhone photos that I was ready for something bigger and better. And so in that process he became a mentor. In India we have this concept of guru hmm. which you basically, it's not about the guru being just the teacher but it's also being the the guide through your journey and I think uh because of that I learned the art of expressing myself visually and Chris has been a big part of it and as I say he taught me a new way of expressing because I knew how to use the words and write and all that kind of stuff but I think taking photographs and and using them to kind of show how I feel and where I am in life and like in my head space. Hmm. That's something I've learned from from Chris. And, and you, you, know, you talked it. a lot you, you, okay. you
0: talked a lot about that in that interview on Leica to the end of the earth, right? Uh, where you both jump in and talk about those stories. Share a little bit about like what that what that was like, that transformation to be able to go from, you know, that what you were doing to actually completely, you know, that whole visual communication that you now do. So
1: I think it's not very different, really. I think that that idea, it takes a little while for you to come to it. In a sense, you're essentially trying to express. And sometimes when you're expressing, you know, you can use words or you can use like visual arts. And I think learning how to use, you know, what's in front of me, what is in front of the landscape and kind of you know, you know, paring down the landscape is no different than what I used to do with my blogging. Like blogging was for me not like, it's not about the longest piece or it's not about, you know, a lot of throat clearing. It was essentially presenting the essence of something clearly, concisely with a strong point of view. And my photography essentially became that. It was, it was not about everything, it is about the essence of a place and expressing it, how I feel about the place in that very limited sense of a, you know, in a very edited palette. And I mm-hmm. think that it, it probably is the journey which I took from from blogging into uh, visual expression. Chris I
0: mean, the Glacier View sent. pictures, the leak, yeah, I mean, it's just Chris, amazing. The like guys, like, your, your like it's is amazing. amazing. Let's just start there. Uh, so. but,
2: man, can I just build on something Ohm said? You know, and as you're listening to this thing, you know, you can think about photography very literally, uh, which is about making pictures and putting pictures on the internet or printing them. But, you know, I think when Om is talking about it, and I certainly share this, we we mean this as kind of uh, photography and visual storytelling and art as a way of seeing the world and as a way of living. You know what I mean? So it if, if fully embraced, it changes how you interface and see the world, right? You... It slows you down, it gives you deeper appreciation for moments and um, and the impermanence of life. So you know what's wonderful about photography, unlike almost any other kind of art form, is every single person listening to the show has the possibility and quite straightforwardly to become a good photographer. And so that joy that Om and I both share and it's become the purpose of my life is something that's available to all of us. And it may be photography and it may be writing or maybe doing a show but this creativity really enhances life.
0: But it's deep, it's uh, the depth, it's the uh, focus, it's the aperture, I mean, it's the grain. I mean, you you hit them all at the same time. I mean, not that I'm an expert in photography, but it's amazing, uh you know, as an amateur. good
4: photos of food, Ray. I love your photos (laughs) of your barbecue.
0: Yeah, but this is like a whole nother (laughs) level. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, this guy. But, so. but,
4: but Chris Ohm recently wrote that you know, photography is an expression of what I'm feeling at that moment. Um, when you guys are in these hard-to-get places, uh, you know, where all you see is vastness of ice, and uh, you know, just it, it, it seems like uh, you know you're now purposefully lost in places you want to be, and 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 trying to understand you know humanity and, and the environment and. What, what does photography mean to you? How did you get involved in photography and the lessons that you learn in terms of being present, um, slowing down, uh, appreciating your surrounding uh, how would, uh, how, would that, how, how would these lessons translate to being an investor or an entrepreneur? would you have managed military.com differently or do you manage how you invest in startups or entrepreneurs because now you have a different approach, different mindset that's, a pre- that, that's, that's born
2: in you because of your photography experience. Well, of of you, that, was a, that was like 19 questions. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so right. what does photography so, wait, mean I'll to I'll you? Throw out, I'll throw out a crazy kind of idea. So mm-hmm. you said, how would it have informed my two companies? And one uh, one thing, you know, reminds me of um, a mentor of mine, Bill Solomon, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, who's an amazing person and very influential in my life. And, you know, he said something a few years ago, do you remember that whole debate about, do you need to go to college if you're gonna be an entrepreneur? Or yep. do you need yep. to go to get an MBA? Or if you have a companies have MBAs, they're gonna reduce the valuation of the company. There's that whole movement and that might even still be going on. And you know what, um, what Bill said, and I th- thought that this was very wise and very helpful to me is he said, you know, for many people, their real objective in their life is not to start a company or to be an entrepreneur. Their real objective is to live a good life, right, to appreciate moments. And I guess um, one thing I would say that photography has done for me is give me a deeper appreciation of the real purpose of companies for me. So for me, the real purpose of Military.com and Affinity Labs was not about creating value. Uh, it, it was well, not creating about financial value, it was creating an experience for the people that worked at my company, for the people that we touched, that would be an important experience in our lives. You know what I mean? So it was actually about the memories. I sit on boards and I take photos. People think the conversation in the boardroom is so important. We forget those so often. What we remember are the people, you know. So when Ohm and I are out in, in the Arctic, it's interesting. Uh, he and I are not shooting the same thing. Ohm is shooting the landscape <laughs> and connecting with a kind of deeper meditative state. And I'm shooting Ohm, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, photograph, I think what touches our heart and what touches my heart. And this is my job at the National Academies is people that inspire me. And, you know, people like Ohm inspire me. So
1: I think the one uh, point I will make just as an add on to what Chris said um, I think for me, photography has been about learning to, you know, the, the concept of imperfection. Like it literally is, and I think a lot of founders could could just be benefit from embracing imperfection because we live in a world where everything has to be perfect. Everything has to be tack sharp and everything has to be just so. And photography for me, like every time I take a picture, it's not, it's not about being perfect. It's just about being how I, you know, like what is good enough for me at that very moment. And I think if we take that and we take those slices and put them, you know, one after another, we end up having an interesting, successful life. And in an, that interesting, successful life, perhaps will lead to an interesting successful financial outcome for a company or a person, right? Like, I think we just kinda, when you start thinking purely in financial outcomes, you're starting to think about life as perfection. And that just, there is so much room for disappointment.
0: So embrace the imperfect and uh, very, very good point. Um, When I first moved out to San Francisco uh, in 1996, uh, it was about 25 years ago this month, and uh, it was imperfect. The city was imperfect. It was a very different city. And I think uh, you, you've all experienced that through the different years that's crossed there. I uh, want to ask you guys uh, what you think and where are we in terms of uh, the city, in terms of San Francisco itself? Um, is it the same San Francisco? How has it changed in the past decade? What's the good, the bad, and the ugly on your ends? And what do you guys see?
1: Chris, you want to take it?
2: That's a very rich topic. Uh, let me let me try the um, non-obvious answer. There's so many places to look to be disappointed in the city of San Francisco. We have high expectations for the city. And I think the real danger is we get so, fo- and th- by the way, this is not just relevant to San Francisco, we get so focused on what's wrong, we don't appreciate all the wonderful things that we have in, in this city. In fact, my um, girlfriend, Sophia, and I were running today and we were commenting, what city in the world has everything that San Francisco has? Weather, beauty, nature, people, innovation, ideas. We couldn't come up with one. There are many great cities, but San Francisco is one of the world's great cities. But mostly I just hear about all of the problems. And I'm not diminishing, that these, that diminishing these problems. I think that they're very real. But I think an important idea is let's, let's be sure that we do appreciate our lives every day and how much we have, because we have a lot. And there's a lot to be thankful for in the city.
1: Yeah. You know, like you, Ray, I've been here for a long time. And one of the lessons I have learned is people who have spent a limited amount of time in this city complain the most about the city. (laughs) People who don't live in this city complain the most about this city. Like, again, Mm -hmm. to Chris's point, it doesn't take away from all the issues we have. And the biggest issue we have is that we have a political class in this city which seems to be managing a city which doesn't exist. You know, no one wants to admit that this is a squarely middle-class and upper middle-class city now. You know, that, that is such an affront to San Franciscan thinking that that has happened. And unless we embrace that, there cannot be any real change in the city, so they are managing city like it was as if it is in the 60s and the 70s, and I think we we just have a much deeper challenge in the city, you know, and to you know address many different issues. The politicians in this city are not here to solve a problem; mm-hmm. they are here to get elected for four more years. And unless we can overcome that, you know, your previous uh, speaker, you know, Rita was talking about long lack of long-term thinking, long-term thinking goes across the board. It is in politics, it is in civic uh, infrastructure, it is in corporations. And I think we have such short-termism and, you know, San Francisco is a perfect example of short-termism because it's a small city, which is, and it, everything is very highly visible. It's, but it's also a city which you know, has been weird forever. Like it's not new. It's like for over a century it has done this kind of weird behavior, right? Like I wrote about this one time saying this San Francisco is like a homeless man screaming obscenities wearing a Brooks Brothers jacket and no pants. That's what San Francisco is. <laughs> I mean there's with no the other gold rush way- mentality. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is it's like we have to kind of really think about the place and you know think about like how are we going to like what is it all about now in 2021 you know it's not 1960 it's not 1970 it's not 1980 this is 2021 it is the babylon of the new you know, new reality which is enabled by technology and and connectivity and so unless we have a city which embraces that and politicians which understand that and and kind of, you know, start thinking about those things, we will continue to have all these challenges. So there is a lack of understanding more than anything else. Absolutely, Ohm
4: writes, most people in my industry have faint regard of history, we don't quite remember that San Francisco is and always will be unexplainably weirdo, a homeless person in Brooks Brothers Chino drinking from a cup of coffee chain famous for its $5 coffee and yelling passages from the New Testament mixed with mentions of Greenwald. <laughs> So, so that was, that was that was. I think I know which corner you're at. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but so, going
4: so. back to Chris's um, uh, reminder of looking for the goodness and beauty that's around us, I often see you sharing photos where you say, "Here's a person that I admire." It's always an exquisite yes. photo of them in a unique setting, um, you know, and and, and so. Who are the folks that you admire? How do you get on the Chris Michael admire list? What do they need to be doing? What are your observations of them for you to take a photo and
2: tag to your large well, uh, I, social I, I community? You're going to me this. You're so close. You're just really, like, <laughs> I'm I'm trying. Trying. <laughs> taking a decade. Like I'll a be good. there in a couple of years. I'm working hard. I'm working hard. You're <laughs> almost <laughs> fine. Uh, well, you know, I have this job with the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and that job is to really elevate people in science, engineering, and medicine in society. And my general view is we have a we we could benefit from some cultural tweaks here, where we tend to uh, talk about celebrities from the entertainment world or people mm-hmm. that have made a lot of money, and and I, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with those people certainly, but I do think we have some new heroes out there that are really working on behalf of humanity that we should talk about, that are better role models. You know, yes. uh, Day before yesterday, I spent uh, two hours with Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for her work with CRISPR and gene editing. I mean, who is more important or is doing more important work for society? There's no one. That's that includes Jeff Bezos, any of those people. This woman and and the technology she's working on is changing the world. Right. She's just one of so many. And you don't have to win a, a Nobel Prize to be on my list. The truth is that I see things that I admire in so many people, in almost everyone I meet. So I have a, I have a kind of glass half full view of this. Um, and um, I, you know, when I make photos of people, which I do every single day, I see the best in the people I photograph. And it's you know, just, uh, in yeah. a in
1: a way, you know, it's like there is a, uh, there is a, you want to know what how to get on. Chris is, you know, yeah, I do. <laughs> I think it is, And I've known Chris for a long time and the number one thing you need to need to be in order to get on that list be interesting. Hmm. It doesn't you don't have to be famous. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You have to be interesting. You have to be kind. Hmm. You have to be generous. You have to give more than you receive. Those three qualities make for an interesting person for Chris. I've seen it. Well, you know, like, that's
2: why I love Ohm. I'd I never thought about it that way. And Ohm is one hundred percent right. That is instant synthesis. It. Yeah. In you know, I'm a blogger, man. What can I say? <laughs> one, the, most the most important part of that is maybe two most important parts, is about giving and kindness. You know, if you are and those things are related, you know. But if you're not doing those two things, I don't care how successful you are, you're not on my list.
0: You know, Those are one of the most important Can criteria that we have for one of our awards, which is the Business Transformation 150. We scour wow. the world for leaders that have that. We don't care if they've done an awesome project, but ultimately, they've got to have that kindness, that spirit of giving yeah. it forward. And of course, they can't be an asshole, but yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, think this is the bar we should hold all of, all of humanity to, which is success doesn't happen just through financial uh, no. prowess. It happens through your life and how you live and there's lots of ways to be at the top of that list. And, you know, I think about school teachers are an obvious example or caregivers. I, these are unsung heroes, you know, that to me, they're more important and more valuable than almost anyone that we talk about in the media.
0: Chris, can we go
2: to a okay.
4: Chris Michael website and find these people? Like I scroll through your feed because I look for your photos and you very often mention these folks. And to be honest with you, I, I, I don't know most of them.
1: Well, I uh, pay attention, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're not paying attention. <laughs> I got to pay more. Well,
4: attention. But but but
0: to add to that, I mean, are there people that we should follow on Twitter, you know, best blogs or podcasts to read, like, you know, things people you see as mentors, people that could be other people's mentors that we should add to that list?
1: Um, you know, I don't know about you, Chris, but I don't have a list like that. I basically keep finding new people all the mm-hmm. time. It's like yesterday I was talking to this guy in LA He's like a a ceramist who started making jeans, and I just wanted to know why. And then I ended up basically learning all about his life story and, you know, why he felt that, you know, he wants to create things, and it was just a journey for him. And it was just like, he's interesting. Is he famous? No. Will he be famous? I don't know. But I had a great one-hour chat with him. Will I meet with him? I don't know. But so I think what the other thing, which I think the fourth aspect to what makes somebody interesting is, it's like, how open are you to actually open to other people? I think Hmm. it's on you, Ray and Walla to actually be more open and be more receptive of what is out there and the signal will come to you. There is no, I can't recommend people I find interesting, Chris doesn't find interesting, but sometimes (laughs) there is an overlap, but not all the time. And it's uh, you know it's usually when he recommends somebody that actually I'll pay attention. But
0: it's a great point. I mean, the, the the area of interest that that's opening up to me right now is I I want to understand the immigrant story. I think there's this collection of immigrant values, no matter where you came from. But it's almost like pioneers, right? People were the first generation of something, and being able to look back three generations later to see what stayed, what values are there, what's kept. Uh, uh, that's an interesting story that keeps uh, popping up into into my life. But can we reset the room real quick and talk about something else? Uh, mm-hmm. Really talk about a little bit about startups and founders and entrepreneurs. Um, and, and and I really want to know for you guys if there's any advice you have for them. You know, in terms of figuring out you know which companies people are investing in, why that matters, or where that plays
1: a role. Chris, you want to take that?
2: Gosh, I'm I'm the least qualified person now because uh, all I do is make photographs. Um, You know, I mean, if you're talking about where to find opportunities, you know, there's just never been a better time. I mean, it is it is just a crazy time with the number of investors and startups. I mean, it is a full on Cambrian explosion. Would uh, you say
0: there's more money than ideas right now?
2: Um. Boy, there is a lot of money. It's difficult for me to look at supply and demand here. You know, when I uh, raised money in my first company in 1999, people are like, "Oh, it was so easy because there was so much money," but there were also a lot of startups. So I think there are a lot of startups. Um, it does look like it's never been easier to raise money. When I did it, there were a small number of firms in Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think what is exciting is uh, this idea of tech is kind of an old idea. Tech is everything now. You know, companies that say we need a digital transformation—you got to sort of worry about, right? <laughs> I mean, it's you know, or we ne- need our digital division. What what does that even mean, you know? Um, and you're in trouble. <laughs> me, I'm just watching, you know, because I just photographed Jennifer Dowdnam, and she has a company called Mammoth Biosciences, and our fr- friend James Courier invested in that company. Nope. And I'm just Mother watching of CRISPR. A, a, yeah, a documentary about, called Human Nature, which I couldn't recommend more highly. You know, think about all of the potential in healthcare, not just with CRISPR, but with all of these new technologies. I mean, this is what excites me, which is not the old fashioned, you know, tech enabled. We can get you alone more quickly on the Internet. It's technology that fundamentally transforms how we're going to live as humans. And we're a lot of that's coming to and people are taking very, very big risks and in a way that's really positive for society that may be something really really positive. So I guess I'm encouraged by that whole area. And, um, you know, for anyone out there thinking about starting a company, I mean, there really is no downside. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Yeah, no wearable technology, virtual reality, genome sequencing, remote monitoring tools, telemedicine. I mean, it's it's definitely changing. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I think there is uh, just a you know just to add to what Chris said. Basically, there is two different ways of thinking about technology. One is technology enabled, and and the other is technology. The uh, you know, I still think people underestimate the need for more better technologies for for the networks. People are underestimating the need for. Silicon, which consumes less power and is more powerful and can do more things, people are underestimating the need for compute for you know the CRISPR related you know efforts. So, I think what we have right now is a a whole ton of money, most of it is what used to be in the past PE slash um, mutual fund money. But then there is some money which is actually betting on the future in a big way. And I think, you know, we are True definitely are like on the, on the camp of like going after really big markets, which, which may emerge, right? Computational biology, computational material sciences, whether it is like, you know, new kinds of, you know, network topologies, all those things are still opportunities massive opportunities. You know, you look at what people at Lux are doing or DCVC is doing and like, you know, some of the, or like what we at True are doing, like there's certain groups which are actually going really at the at the edge. And I think that's where real technology action is happening. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, do the same old, same old, but everything else is also very important. Whether you're, you know, reinventing how, you know, food is grown that's a huge opportunity. What is food is a huge opportunity. I mean, we are living through the summer of climate change hell right now. Hmm. How do you think we are going to be living in twenty years when it is, you know, hundred and ten degrees outside all the time? Who's going to be delivering food? Who's going to be bringing in all the stuff? What will be food? What will be wearing? I mean, those are all you know, green field, blue ocean opportunities. To address, because if we don't, we as a race have an existential crisis. I mean, that's why Om was
2: such a great investor. How, how good was that? That was, that was awesome. Cool. That was awesome. Yeah.
1: That was awesome.
0: said.
4: I, I
2: said.
4: also, this is my last question in terms of entrepreneur advice, advice to business leaders. Ohm, um, you wrote that you often think about living with the weight of legacy. And you said, success should help free one from the various chokeholds of life. Instead, ironically, it can force us into a trap of perfection. And often all we should be considering is hitting the big reset button. Mm -hmm. When you talk about 2015, 16, finding the love for photography, was that a reset button for you? And can you expand more about this (laughs) living with the weight of legacy?
1: Um, I think, yeah, yeah, 2015 was not not a reset at all. Like it was just, I think photography was an escape, an idea Mm. of being alone and more than anything else. It's become something bigger than that. Uh, I think when I talk about reset, I think about what if you've done something, and I, I learned this from my conversations with other people and I do feel the legacy of like having done something successfully in the past can be a problem. So you have to really rethink what you're doing again and why you're doing something again. So, you know, it's a little bit um hard to do, to define without getting very specific about certain things, but like 2015 was not a reset. That was just shitty time in my life. Okay.
0: Wow. Well, hey, we've got some really good nuggets of insight uh some very, very interesting views here in terms of where the future is happening, what people need to do uh, on their own level. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is really just about, you know, where, where folks are, right? What's, what's your general gauge of where, you know, the mood is inside your friends, your networks today? Are people more hopeful? Are people less hopeful? Are they, you know, do they see like, you know, more opportunities than before? Or do they feel like they're constrained in the systems that are there? Like what's the general gauge? I'll start with you, Om, and then go to Chris.
1: Uh, Depends. You know, it's like, again, i many of my friends are feeling a sense of anxiety because, yeah, not because of the COVID, it just is general anxiety from a world which is moving much faster than it it did. And so I think that's natural. Like if you're not anxious and if you're not feeling uncomfortable, you know, something is wrong. Like what's I what's Was, not
0: wasn't, wasn't that always the case? We were always living in that. Do they feel like they're behind the wave instead of ahead of the wave or not riding the wave? Like is, is I think that, we is live that in, feeling?
1: We are living in a lot of noise. and and that's the change. Noise in a world which is coming at all of us much faster Mm -hmm. and so we as humans are still trying to figure out how to process all that and that causes anxiety. Anxiety however is also what leads to you know you being creative and thinking differently Mm -hmm. and you know doing new things. So I kind of I kind of embrace anxiety as a way of forcing new things. So but I again deal with a lot of founders and a lot of entrepreneurs, and and so it's not like and and some photographers, you know, you see one <laughs> on stage who's calm as anything. So,
4: <laughs> so is this yes. an Andy? Is this an Andy Grove? A slight paranoia is a good thing. Um, so anxiety is a, is okay, or you're just saying it's even it's at higher levels
1: than you've experienced in the past. I think it's a little bit more, people are more anxious because they just have a little t- tough time like processing all the change which is happening. Now on my own personal thing is like, wow, this is like, this is the time of change and it's a massive change. This And this is what makes it very exciting. Yeah, Like you look at world around us, right? Like if you read the media today and you would think that, you know, the tech has destroyed the planet and like but at the same time what's going to save the planet like so why not get excited about what could save us not what could destroy us yeah facebook and twitter and all those things maybe not such a good idea in hindsight but looking forward right like what are we you know we can't be just given up if we are anxious and we are feeling that anxiety that will probably force us to think about opportunities and creating new things and Keep going at it. And I think that is what I get like feel excited about anxiety as a as a catalyst for change.
0: Anxiety is a catalyst for change. I think that's really important. Hey, Chris, real quick, we only got a little bit of time. Any thoughts on your end? What's changed?
2: Uh, I think Owens nailed it. I think people are more anxious and the media is playing a very significant role. We're all jacked into the system. And um, honestly, I think it's requiring us to think about new ways of engaging in the world. We need to um, bolster our stoic selves. We need to have a philosophical bedrock in which to engage in the world. And I think about Oliver Sacks in the last year of his life and his decision to disengage from reading the news. And I think that there is something to that. I'm not saying that we should live in our own little world, but I am saying that we need to be careful about what we're consuming and ingesting, because all of these people that are providing us content, including our friends, but mostly the media, they have a real incentive in in engaging the the limbic brain, you know, and um, uh, there's a danger for all of us. And so I am really careful about who I let into my world and the content that I consume. And I think people understate the role of the things that they're um, seeing and hearing and believing uh, and I think the content that we consume is like the food that we consume, it, it changes who we are. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm careful about that and trying every day to be more careful.
0: Massive cumulative effects, massive threshold levels that are unknown yet. We're definitely seeing that. We're here with Chris Michael, inaugural artist in residence at the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And Om Malik, founder of GIGOM, an award-winning journalist, photographer, and probably philosopher. So you can follow him on Twitter at Chris Michael and at Twitter at Om. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank Thank you, guys. And I would say Walla is the best Twitter follow for me. (laughs) Oh, hey. What? Wow. Yeah. We <laughs> until the Sorry, end. <laughs> you know, you know, Ray. You would agree with me, right? Like, why? I agree I with always,
0: you. I take no offense. I take is no the offense. King. That's why you we're just partners.
1: just made my July. Wow! <laughs> That's it. I thought I was gonna make your twenty twenty one. But oh, oh no, you did. You did. Oh,
3: oh. <laughs> Oh, shit. Oh, no. my
4: God. I'm going to try to cut, edit this last 10
1: seconds. Of, and of course, I'll follow and someday I'll make it on Chris's list. But this is great. But thank <laughs> you, both good. of you, for, for yes. having me on, on on the show. That was very kind. And and again, while I keep tweeting, man, I really enjoy it. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. What Most inspirational
0: honor. tweets in the business. Yeah, thank you. So, thank hey, you. thanks a lot for being on the show and uh, see you in the green room. So, great, yeah. all right. Wow. Um, we are
3: I, time just flies with I'm us i don't know how this right? works
4: I, I, just, I just had a drop a mic moment uh with with a, with a li- literally a legend just yeah, gave yeah. me a pretty awesome compliment yeah yeah i might change my bio on twitter ohm's favorite follow can i do that
0: i <laughs> yeah. think you can i might i might, I might introduce that. you that way next week i'm do, do
4: that yeah please please add that to the bio so, wow, that was awesome but
0: hey w- We have no show next Friday, July 16th, because we've got the Constellation Healthcare Summit in uh, Las Vegas, but we do have another show July 23rd. Who do we have for episode number
4: 243? We have uh, Sunil uh, Karkara, Vice President Global Managing Director at Designate. We have Jeffrey Ullman. Touring Award winner. Yeah, (laughs) yes, yes, (laughs) yes, yeah, yeah, Uh, at, at IT Operations at WorkSpot. And we have Clara Shea, who's the CEO of Service Cloud at Salesforce. And board and, uh, member of Starbucks. Yeah, board member of Starbucks, youngest board member at Starbucks. And yes. she's 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 amazing. So we have incredible uh, – you know, if it's Friday, it, it's Disrupt, and it's my favorite hour. Of course, Rita, Own Chris, perfect example of how individuals that expand our minds um, on, and, and do it uh, brilliantly. So um, – Ray, closing, I know you're in the middle of your book tour. book officially launches uh, on the 13th. Uh, folks like myself and thousands that I know have already purchased the book and are reading the first three chapters before the official launch. Of course, I have my entire book, which is great. I feel great about that. Uh, closing remarks and your thoughts, and, and you know, to, uh, should we – are we gonna be surprised next week when the book is launched? Uh, anything you can tell us? All right, so
0: here's here's the, they're, they're Easter eggs throughout the book. People don't realize that. There are $3 trillion market cap company ideas in there and ten hundred billion um, unicorn ideas built into the book. If anybody sees them and understands them, give me a call, I will walk you through them. If it's over your head, don't even worry about it. The, the rest of the book is just as fun, uh, but I, I deliberately put them in there just to see who would call me and, and connect. Um, thank you, everyone, if, uh, if you get a chance to buy it. But more importantly, I. Just I want to thank our readers, our viewers, and all the folks that follow us on Disrupt TV. Uh, this is an awesome family, awesome community, and uh, you know we we do this every week for you, and we really appreciate the time you spend with us, uh, that you let us in. Hopefully, the content's good enough you don't close us out. <laughs> so, but uh, but really appreciate that. Anything on your end, Bala?
4: No, I'm uh, I'm 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 grateful for you capturing these incredible ideas in the book. I'm grateful for the Disrupt TV community, and we have fantastic second half of 2021. The show is doing really well. And, you know, it's because of our audience and our incredible yes. guests, the best and brightest people in the world. Come spend Friday afternoons or mornings or evenings, depending on where they are with us. And They're it's on the just Peloton. a super, it's a super humbling experience for Gray and I. Super humbling experience. I
0: know. Thank you, everybody. See you next, see you in two Fridays. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye.